Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Good morning, afternoon, evening. Happy weekend or weekday, whatever it is, wherever you are. Darren Mott here with the Cyber Guy Podcast. Thank you for coming in to episode 64. It is March 14th. It's a Saturday here in lovely Huntsville, Alabama, and I am uh, looking forward to this podcast. Uh, There's a great, great interview in this one with uh, Snehal Antani, who is the current uh, CEO and founder of Horizon 3, a penetration testing company. We have a my intent on the interview was to talk to him um, about what penetration testing is and, and talk about some success stories, but we really dived into a lot more areas, especially regarding leadership and things like that. And it might be one of the best uh, interviews I've had on this on this podcast up to this date. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, share it with your friends. It's a really engaging interview, uh, and I look forward to bringing that to you in just a little bit. So uh, before we get to that, uh, let's start off with our educational look for the week. What are we What are we learning about this week? Um, so I want to talk about what penetration testing is. Since um, uh, Snehal's company uh, is a big penetration testing company, and some of the stuff they do is pretty fascinating, I just kind of want to talk about what penetration testing is, just to give you an idea if you're not necessarily familiar with it exactly. This is from um, another website called Contrast Security. They kind of define it. It was a good definition, so I thought I'd use it here uh, on the podcast to explain penetration testing. Penetration testing, also known as pen testing, security pen testing, security testing, is a form of ethical hacking. It describes the intentional launching of simulated cyber attacks by white hat penetration testers using strategies and tools designed to exploit or access computer systems, networks, websites, and applications. Although the main objective of pen testing is to identify exploitable issues so that effective security controls can be implemented, security professionals can also use penetration testing techniques along with specialized tools to test the robustness of a organization's security policies, compliance, security uh, employee security awareness, and the organization's ability to identify and respond to security issues and incidents, such as unauthorized access as they occur. So essentially, what you're looking to do if you're doing a penetration testing is hack your own system. Can you get in? Can you find a way in and find uh, vulnerabilities that you can exploit that a bad guy would do? And then if you find those holes, is there you then can then go and fix the holes so that they necessarily can't get in. The sad thing really is most companies don't do enough of this to test their systems because software and hardware and stuff like that is constantly updated within networks. And as a result, those changes can create new vulnerabilities that bad guys can exploit. Or, even worse, the lack of doing those kind of patching creates his exploits. So when Microsoft does its big patch of the month or Apple sends you an update to your computer, and this can be, and this can be uh, transitioned down to looking at it from a home user perspective, when you get um, changes or you make changes to software on your system because of holes that the manufacturer has found and sent out a patch, you are fixing a vulnerability, but that has the potential to create other vulnerabilities. Or if you fail to deploy the update, you are allowing those holes to maintain. So it allows a bad guy access into your network. Penetration testing is the ability to test your whole network to find where your holes are if you don't know. Chances are for most companies, small, medium-sized companies that don't have a huge security or IT group it's hard to do that testing on a regular basis. So um, it's good to, it, excuse me, engage a 
penetration testing company to do those penetration testing tests for you so you can see where your vulnerabilities are. So that's what penetration testing is in a, in a, in a really deep nutshell. So it's something you should certainly maintain because as we talk about now our threat of the week for the third week in a row, it's going to be Russian hacking because of the whole Russian-Ukrainian um, conflict going on. Russian-based hackers are upping their targeting of websites, companies, institutions, critical national infrastructure. Um, so I'm reading an article here from the New York Post. It's by Charles Gasparino, and the title is Russian Cyber Attacks Against U.S. Banks Increasing, which is not a surprise, but let's just kind of talk about it a bit. So from the article, Russia appears to have officially declared cyber war on the U.S., taking what's been described as preliminary steps at crippling the banking system and possibly other major industries. The Biden administration has been working with bank executives for months about preparing for cyber attacks as retaliation over U.S. sanctions. The big U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, are under constant attacks by cyber criminals looking to disrupt operations and steal client information. The usual suspects are most often located in Iran, China, and, of course, Russia. So uh, bank executives tell the Post that they spent billions of dollars annually to protect against cyber criminals, but they say the recent wave of attacks is different. Sources describe them as a subtle but intensified assault on banks' technological infrastructure that began over the sanctions over Ukraine were announced. So this is not a surprise that um, Russian intelligence services, Russian military intelligence, their civilian intelligence, the FSB, uh, their military is the GRU, um, and also patriotic Russian hackers are going to be looking at ways to inflict damage on U.S. infrastructure. Uh, and when I say infra critical infrastructure, what I'm talking about is those areas uh, where industries exist to keep your lights on, to allow the gas to flow, to transport stuff across the country, to do financial institutions, things like that. Anything that keeps the country rolling is part of critical national infrastructure. It's those things that if we were to lose that piece of our infrastructure, we would have a lot of problems. If, you, if gas can't flow, if trucks can't move, if power goes out, that dramatically impacts the lives of millions and millions of Americans. Uh, and so with that being said, if you are a company owner, if you depend, regardless of where, what you work, you need to be paying attention to your networks, um, engage in cybersecurity capabilities, whether you outsource them or find someone, maybe, you know, if you can't afford outsourcing to a managed service provider because your company's too small, go to a local college and find cybersecurity folks. You may be able to pay them, you know, uh, some money that, that is cheaper than you normally would do to kind of do some cybersecurity tests. It may, it's not going to be the greatest. I wouldn't necessarily recommend just finding someone who knows about something about computers and say, hey, you know, try to hack my system. That's not the way I'm saying, but if someone is engaged in cybersecurity learning or, or knowledge and stuff like that, then, you know, maybe engage them in some ways to kind of test and look at your network to see if they can find vulnerabilities that you can then protect and, um, you know, secure yourself against. So you do not become a victim of this increased, largely increased Russian cyber activity that we're probably going to see going forward for quite a little while to come. So um, you will probably see a lot of news reports about this with Russia and things like that. So again, something just to be aware of, you know, from a home user perspective is something you necessarily need to concern yourself with, certainly, because there is, uh, there are, there is um, ancillary 
actions that bad guys will take to hack into uh, local, or not local, I'm sorry, um, individual networks to use as launching points. And then the FBI comes to your house and says, hey, we've got this attack against Bank of America originated from your house. Why is that? It's because some bad guy was in your system and used it to launch an attack. Not overly common, but certainly could happen. So again, knowledge is protection. Understand the threats that are targeting you. You can assess your risk, then proceed online, if you will. So with that, we will now talk with uh, Sneha Halantani, the CEO of Horizon 3. Again, like I said, this is a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. Well, it's my honor to welcome on to the Cyber Guy podcast, Sneha Halantani, the founder of Horizon3.ai, a penetration testing company. We'll talk about what they do a little later on. But Sneha, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to little old me here in Huntsville, Alabama. Awesome, Darren. Thank you for the time. Sure. So let's talk. I always talk start off with anybody talking about their career arc because I, I specifically talk to folks within the cyber arena in a lot of different areas, either law enforcement, past law enforcement, um, private sector, kind of like you are. But talk about your career arc. Everybody's career arc is different. How did you get involved in cybersecurity? Was it something you always wanted to do? Did you fall into a computer in a VIC-20 when you were young? And so that's pretty cool. Let me learn that. So how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a question I, I think a lot about, remember a lot about. I, I started getting into tech when I was really young, six years old, uh, probably before that. My dad is an electrical engineer, and uh, he used to travel for work and come back with toys, and uh, he would intentionally sabotage those toys. So he brought a, a, a Toby robot once when I was six years old home from a trip, and uh, he had said, hey, here's this toy. I got excited. I turned it on. It didn't work. What happened? Well, I don't know what's wrong, but here's a multimeter, a soldering iron, and a screwdriver. Maybe you can figure it out. And he taught me to unscrew the back of the, the robot, pull off the lid. Did the current get from here to here? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, the problem must be on the other side of the board. Is it here to here? No. Oh, maybe it's on this side. And he taught me to systematically debug these complicated problems. And sure enough, I would see that he had cut the resistor. And I would take the soldering iron. He taught me to, to fix it. And then the robot would turn on. and and I'd be excited to play. And uh, I got so excited, I would drop the soldering iron and run and show my mom and my baby brother at the time and leave a nice little burn hole in the carpet. And uh, of course, this is the early 80s, so the carpet is like bright maroon, you know, 80s color. And, uh, and so in that particular corner of the house were dozens of burn holes from dozens of soldering irons being dropped in excitement. So that they was- say, At some point, they just say it's a pattern? It's the pattern the carpet came in? Yeah, yeah, this is exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and so that was, I was six years old. I had my first computer when I was eight or nine, uh, uh, 386. And uh, and then from there, kind of, it, it went off. Uh, that was 1989 when I got my first computer. I taught myself to code basic. I got into bold board services, found the Anarchist Cookbook, found all sorts of other fun stuff that one would find in a bulletin board service, hacker tools. Uh, I then... Uh, started to learn about phishing attacks using uh, AOL chat rooms to fish for passwords just to learn. And once I realized that this was a dicey trajectory and my <laughs> dad kind of pulled me aside and said, Hey, look, you, you haven't yet crossed the line, but, but you better watch yourself. I, I backed off and spent time playing video games instead. That was really my early career and exposure to tech was at six years old, seven, eight, nine years old early. And I knew, I was going to be in technology at a very early age. That's great. And so, so your background, you, you have JSOC experience, you 
we know you're a founder of Splunk or were you that you were? No, I came in um, uh, well after the IPO. Okay, gotcha. So talk about JSOC a little bit because I found that fascinating. Where, how did you get to that point and what did you do with JSOC? So uh, to talk about JSOC requires me to back up quite a bit to tell the journey to get there. And uh, so when I, when I graduated high school, I went to undergrad at Purdue, studied computer science. And computer science, I always viewed as a horizontal field. It was a field that was a tool that I could use to solve a variety of problems I cared about. I got passionate about stock trading. So I used my coding skills to write code to analyze stocks and decide what to buy and sell. And ended up becoming pretty decent at trading stocks algorithmically. I got into bioinformatics and I wrote code to go off and study other things. So computer science was always this horizontal tool. And when I first graduated Purdue and started IBM as a software engineer, my focus was on establishing technical credibility. I need to really understand technology. And this is 2002. A lot of my friends in the Silicon Valley, I went to Poughkeepsie, New York. Not exactly the bastion of, Silicon, of technology innovation in the world. But if you double click, that's where the mainframe was born. Well, it's funny. Okay, I'm going to step back to my, my high school roommate. I mean, I'm sorry, my college roommate was from Poughkeepsie. His parents worked for IBM in, in that area. And he went, when he graduated with a computer science degree, this is in the 80s, he went to work for IBM in the Poughkeepsie area. So that's, it's funny how everybody, you, it's, it's a yeah. small world, you want to paint it. What's amazing about IBM Poughkeepsie is you can trace your lineage from your mentor to that person's mentor and so on back to the system 360 and back to the machines that put people on the moon. And so there's this incredibly rich history of systems engineering and design. And the difference between those that say mainframe and those that say cloud is the year they were born. Mm -hmm. A lot of the problems I had to go understand and solve on the mainframe side prepared me quite well to understand cloud and all the new stuff that's coming out. Even vertically integrated computing, specialized edge compute, all of that is stuff that you had to go deal with on the mainframe in terms of highly specialized processors to solve a specific function. And now you get into workload optimized placement, all these other advanced concepts that are only now surfacing in various platforms outside of, of the name, you know, secured memory, all that kind of stuff, hardware, hardware based encryption of memory. And so I had these amazing mentors at a very young age at IBM who took the time to help me understand how to become a better technologist. And if you, if you build a strong technology foundation, and at the time I also realized I had to get better at speaking, get better at writing, get better at understanding organization and business development. I knew I had to acquire these skills and I built these, I took jobs that, that helped me learn the next set of skills I wanted. So I never took jobs for money. I took jobs for learning, especially in the first 10 years of my career. Fast forward, I am now uh, 32 and I leave IBM and I become one of the youngest executives ever at General Electric. So I became a, a CIO at GE Capital. And I came in and I had never been a first line manager, but I was a, a well-regarded technologist. And so GE took the time to teach me how to be a good organizational leader while at the same time, I got to help transform the technology capabilities of my areas of responsibility. And a lot of lessons were learned in helping a company leverage tech to create a competitive advantage. And a lot of the digital transformation work that comes along with it. And if you skip forward now to JSOC, a lot of those experiences and mistakes and lessons learned and successes I had at GE Capital translated well to helping JSOC and special operations 
transform their technology capabilities to create competitive advantages within their mission sets. Um, so that's kind of the, the circuitous answer of, of, of how, how I ended up there. There's a, there's a step in between called Splunk, um, but <laughs> hopefully that, that, uh, that gets the appetite going. Were you, were you contracted from GE to JSOC? If, if I should mention JSOC Joint Special Operations Command. So um, were you contracted there or were you in the military? Yeah, no. So I've uh, my experience in the military is watching Jack Ryan and <laughs> Captain, you know, and Team America. Well, he, was, he, was CIA. he was CIA. Jack Ryan was CIA. Yeah, not yeah. yeah exactly. So, um, so after GE, when GE got divested and sold, I left and joined Splunk as CTO. Okay. And Godfrey Sullivan recruited me over to Splunk. Amazing. Once again, I I picked jobs where I would learn the most, and Godfrey just was an amazing person to learn from and how to run a company, how to scale a company. This is 2015. And uh, I spent about three years there helping Splunk enter new markets, helping to scale the revenue, being a, a trusted advisor to large strategic customers, including those within the national security arena. Okay. So it was through that reputation that I built uh, a network into the intelligence community, into the defense community. And at the end of uh, at the end of my three years at Splunk, I decided to leave, take a break, spend time with family and, and whatnot. And I got this phone call from my the people I built a network from that said, hey, General Miller, who was the commander of JSOC at the time, uh, who then went on to become uh, four-star General Miller in charge of Afghanistan, said, hey, General Miller and, and his team want you to fly out to Tampa and have an offside brainstorming on technology. So cool. I'd already been interfacing with the team. They're great folks. So I fly out to Tampa, spend two days with the team, and, and uh, General Miller, Command Sergeant Major Blake, uh, several others from various units within special operations. And I, we all whiteboarded just for, for two days straight on tech and innovation. And at the end, General Miller kind of says, hey, great. So Sahal, you are going to join us as our first CTO. You okay. are going to start within 90 days. And uh, I look forward to working with you. And to which I said, sir, I'm happily retired. I've got little kids at home in San Francisco. I'm not moving to Fort Bragg. Thank you, but no thank you. And it was made clear to me that he wasn't asking. Ah, nice. <laughs> so um, they come. They they no hacked bureaucracy. No yeah, exactly right. So they hacked bureaucracy, and uh, I I tried to explain to my wife why I was taking such a massive W two cut, and I joined <laughs> as a highly qualified expert SES equivalent uh, as the first CTO of JSOC, reporting directly to to the commanding general and a, and a member of the executive team. Wow. Uh, and that was the first ever that had been done. And uh, it was just an amazing experience, just getting hired in. And then when you think about why would somebody take a 99% pay cut to go work for the government? Because that's really what it worked out to be for me. Um, I viewed it as a PhD program in leadership. And I got to work alongside some of the best leaders this nation's produced. And I learned and grew more professionally and personally in my time there than in any other job I've had. And that's a great point. So I assume that's what led you to Horizon 3 or creating Horizon 3. That yeah, so, so I met my co-founder, Tony, while we were working together within within the special operations community. Uh, Tony was an airman, re uh, recently retired, and uh, he was my deputy when we were working together, deputy CTO. And both of us had this frustration, which is we have no idea we're secure until we've been breached mm -hmm. and by then it's too late like how do i proactively harden my systems 
How do I proactively verify that my security tools are actually working for me? And how do I do so in a way that helps me fix the problems that truly matter? And our options at the time were pay consultants to show up and pen test and own us and then leave behind a PDF report and then disappear for a year. Another option was to have vulnerability scanners run scans, but one, those scans are really noisy. And two, attackers don't need to abuse CVEs in order to compromise your environment. They'll use credential pivoting, misconfigurations in software, and so on. None of these are problems that vulnerability scanners can detect. And then we tried using breach and attack simulation products uh, like Veridin or Attack IQ and so on. And we were huge early adopters of Veridin uh, on the military side. But the issue there is you had to install agents, you had to write your own attack scripts. And when my environment changed, the scripts had to be maintained and updated. And they weren't safe to run against production, which mm -hmm. is a huge part of our attack surface. And so Tony and I took a step back and said, how do we use, how, do we, how can we build adaptive algorithms designed for non-security people so that an IT admin or a network engineer can in three clicks have the power of a 20 year pen testing veteran. That was the design goal. And that's what we pulled off with Horizon 3. So we started the company effectively in January of 2020. Within nine months, we had our, our product out the door. Within uh, 12 months of, of founding the company, we closed our series A. Nine months later, we closed our series B. We now have uh, clearly achieved product market fit, eight week sales cycle, Lots of diverse customers of enterprise, small, medium business, mid-market, mostly non-IT, non-security people using three clicks to become pen testing veterans, mm -hmm. primarily used by the blue team to run self-service pen tests. And what's crazy has been a six to eight week sales cycle. Wow, that is impressive. So we'll, and we'll come back to Horizon 3 in a minute, but I wanna, so your LinkedIn profile and your LinkedIn presence is fascinating. I wish I had followed you before we, started this process for the podcast. But one of the things I found on your profile was you had you have two things on there. What motivates me? Number one is purpose. Number two is impact. Number three is culture and your leadership principles. Be a servant leader. Always do what's best for the business, not what's particularly popular, which I think that is the best one. And let results do the talking. How'd you come up with that? And does it, I assume it drives your business principles? Uh, it absolutely drives my business principles. I those are those are principles I've stuck with me throughout my career. So let's kind of go through go through them. So let's take purpose just as an example. When I was at GE Capital, I was solving problems that didn't matter. Mm. To be honest with you, yeah. like finding a way to make a little bit more money off of interest charging customers. Who cares? It's not saving lives. It's not profoundly changing in any meaningful way, any any aspect. So yeah, I was learning a lot. But I wasn't solving problems that matter. And you talk about impact. It, it's very easy if you're not careful to be put in a position where you're only making an incremental difference in the market or the product or whatever. And if you're going to commit so much of your time to work, you might as well have the, the objective of making a difference. And so I don't want to be incremental. So I've always taken jobs where and I've always taken my approach to jobs of I'm here to make an exponential impact to what I do. Otherwise, why bother? And that's just something that drives me. And something I really learned from my dad as well. My dad would come home super frustrated with, with at work when I was growing up. I'm like, dad, I don't understand. Did the payroll system crash? He's like, no. Like, what are you pissed for? You're still getting paid for what you're doing. 
It's like, yeah, but I'm not making a difference. I want to do more. And so I really learned that from him. And then in culture, you know, when I first came out to, when I moved to Silicon Valley, I quickly realized I was surrounded by a bunch of skinny jeans wearing Stanford grads that all thought they were God's gift to society. Yeah. And I was surrounded by a bunch of people that thought they were know-it-alls. And the biggest epiphany I had when I joined JSOC is every one of them is the best at what they do, but not one of them thinks they're the best at what they do. Every one of them is special, not because they can run far or shoot well, but that they are learn-it-alls that can solve any problem under pressure as a team. And so surrounding myself in a learn-it-all culture is really what brought the best out of me. And so that's something I take culturally as, if you're a know-it-all, go somewhere else. If you're a learn-it-all, we're going to get along really well. And that's really the culture that we've created, not only at Horizon 3, but what I learned and took away from the most during my time in special operations. And I think if you're a learn-it-all, you're also a teach-it-all. So you want to learn as much as you can, but you also want to teach that to others so they become learn learn-it-alls. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And the best way to learn a subject is to teach it, you know, a, a famous Feynman point of view. And if you think about the leadership principles of being a servant leader, I worked at IBM where, you know, effectively one of the youngest IBM fellows ever, you know, on a crazy trajectory in his career, uh, all he did was succeed off of other people's backs. Dictator mm -hmm. tore people down, ripped them apart, um, abused them in every way you could imagine, had no regard for, for um, work-life balance, nothing. It was everything to help that person get to their next promotion. And it was very much a top-down, I'm going to tell you what to do. And back to what, what makes special operations teams so effective is that they get clear vision and guidance in a clearly defined North Star, but then they are empowered with the, the responsibility and enabled with the resources to get the job done. And that's why they make better decisions faster than their adversaries and why we have such tremendous success within that community. And so if you apply that to business, the most effective organizations are those where, and I, I learned this spending time with Satya Nadella when he came to visit me uh, when I was on the military side, was it's not your job to tell everybody what to do. It's your job to give them direction and then enable them to bring their value to the table and flip the pyramid around so that you as a leader are enabling those closest to the problem to get the job done. And that's really instilled everything. If I'm the bottleneck for a bunch of decisions, I failed because I didn't empower my people effectively enough to make those decisions themselves and own those decisions. Uh, and then finally, you know, the other part here, let always do what's best for the business and not what's politically popular. A concrete example of that was back when I was at IBM and, you know, cloud was starting to emerge. This is around 2008. And the, the only thing at the time, Robert LeBlanc, who was the senior vice president there cared about was cloud washing Tivoli revenue so that IBM looked like a formidable cloud player. <laughs> and he was trying to take all of this legacy on-prem software and say it's cloud and it's cloud enabling so that his revenue looked as good as Amazon's. And that was the politically popular thing to do, even though it was fundamentally wrong. The right thing to do, which a small group of us were advocating for was build a cloud business. And if you fast forward, do what's right, voice what's right, you know, now you can see who's a leader in cloud and who isn't. 
And that's because at the time people cared about being what politically, saying the politically popular answer versus saying what they sincerely believed in, in a form to affect decision-making. Uh, and then finally, this goes back to my, my time slash operations, but I've had this pre, uh, belief previously, everything works in PowerPoint. Your results are what does the talking. And if you wanna persuade someone to come along for the ride, you're not gonna do it through charm and PowerPoint. You're gonna mm -hmm. do it with your results. And so no matter what the situation, let your results do the talking. And that's, I've abided by those leadership principles throughout. And I learned a lot of them by watching really mediocre leaders and learning what not to do. And then separately, this PhD program in leadership that I got an opportunity to go participate in. I do think that the best leaders are those that have learned from their worst leaders. So it's good to have bad leaders so you know that when you want to become a leader, what you shouldn't do and what you should do. Concrete example. So when I when I joined the special uh, JSOC and we were running a digital transformation, the a failure that I saw previously at GE was a new CIO came in at GE Capital and said, we are going to transform the company. Excellent. Uh, and then he spent a year working line and block charts and budget lines to transform the organization. When he first came in, he had the hearts and minds of everybody in the company, and we all wanted to change. But a year later, he had no results to show for, and he was mired in all the politics of budgets and lines and blocks. And so as a result, you lost the hearts and minds, you didn't have the quick wins, and you, and you failed. I then saw the exact same thing happen at Splunk when we brought in a new chief product officer and said, we are gonna transform and spent a year on line and block charts and org structure instead of winning the hearts and minds through quick wins. So when I had to go run the transformation at JSOC uh, with the team, we focused on balancing, here's our North Star, here are the quick wins we're gonna execute on to win those hearts and minds and help those that are the cynics or the Eeyores believe that this is different and we're gonna let those results do the talking. Uh, and so there's a lot I can talk about in digital transformation and lessons learned, but but you're right. I learned, I made mistakes myself, but the biggest lessons I learned was being part of failed leadership and, and reflecting on that and trying to improve on it. And I think that for me, the best leaders are those that can take responsibility when things go wrong. And, and as an example, and I did, a, I did an episode uh, months ago, maybe a year ago even, about leadership because there was a, this situation that arose. And I'm not going to say the company, but when we talk about the situation, you'll know probably the company I'm talking about. And I, but there was a company that had a very bad breach that impacted a lot of other people that ended up with a very bad breach because they had a bad password on their distribution server. And the CEO came out and said, well, we had an intern that put that password on. Now to you, to me, that's bad leadership. What's your take? Yeah. You, at the end of the day, you own it. If I'm empowering somebody and they screw up, it's my job. I didn't, I did not have the visibility or the cadence as a leader. I didn't take the time to ask the right questions as a leader in order to understand and mitigate those risks ahead of time. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the best leaders, I think, do three things really well. They're able to clearly define the North Star to, to create cohesion for the team. So they're all marching in the same direction. They are able to establish the right cadence to minimize drift and drive accountability. And third, they're able to ask the right questions to improve their understanding so they can hold people accountable. That's it. 
If you're a great leader, you are good at those three things. And the organization will be, uh, you can trust and empower them to deliver. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll pause there, but but what do you think? I mean, does that align with with your thoughts of a great leader? Absolutely. I mean, you, you're ultimately responsible for those below you and what they're doing and enabling them to do the right thing. But if they do the wrong thing, people do the wrong thing all the time. And so by, by diverting your blame to someone else underneath who may not have known otherwise, I mean, if you, you have to take, you have to understand your entire organization and know what's going on for the most part. And then when things go bad, recognize that you had a flaw somewhere. My question is then, okay, have you fixed the password? Or is it still a bad password? I mean, what have you done past that? I mean, have you, you know, did you even think about these particular threats? Did anyone ever say, hey, we've got this server. If we ever get breached, they can pass out malware to all of our clients. Did, why wasn't that ever dealt with? How come, I mean, are you not dealing with your, well, let's take, and let this brings us right to Horizon 3, your penetration testing company. Um, and you can explain more of what you do beyond that because I've tried probably a lot more complicated than me just saying that. But if they had done their own, internal testing, would they have not at least detected some kind of vulnerability like that, or at least seen the passwords wrong? Yeah. So that's exactly, so let, let's, let's role play for a moment. Yeah. So, um, you know, if I were the CEO solar winds and I'm in that position, it's my opening remarks are I as CEO failed to verify my security posture and hold accountable my posture to ensure that that my customers were secure and safe mm -hmm. period yeah. here's what i'm going to do to rapidly ex uh, verify my posture immediately and catch up so that I'm, i've got a baseline of security here's what i'm going to do then to keep up with the threats and here are the investments i'm going to make to stay ahead of the adversary and i'm going to do a well and you can now derive that from a plan yeah. but in any company in, especially for cybersecurity, it's a catch up, keep up, stay ahead mindset. Yes. Where have you underinvested and you've got to invest to catch up? Just own it. Mm -hmm. Look, if you failed to, to, to recognize this as a problem, own it. You're going to get fired. Well, then you probably deserve it. But more importantly, if you've got a clear way to own the own the outcome and then have a well-defined path forward, that's what matters. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing is, where are my problems? Where are my blind spots? Where are my ineffective controls? And where do I need to invest to catch up my security posture to be at least bare minimum? And I think the opposite of that, I'm sorry to interrupt you real quick, but the opposite of that is Kevin Mandia, who was the first one who came in and said, yeah, we got hit. We got, we are a cybersecurity company and we got hit. And here's, here's what we determined it to be. And it's on me and I'm going to fix it. You can blame anybody else, but take responsibility. That's exactly it. I mean, and, and I've, I've, uh, I've been part of uh, small group forums with, with Kevin and, and that's how he is. I mean, he owns it. Mm -hmm. That also goes back, by the way, to the military culture. He's a yes, former airman. Yes, right? so yes, he is. Yep. In in high performing military officers, they own it. Mm -hmm. They don't pass blame. There's a blameless after action review. This is something I really picked up during my time in special operations. You're not trying to find blame. Understand what happened. Identify what the weaknesses were. Build your continuous improvement plan to get better, and then execute that plan. It's a blameless. Uh, uh, culture versus a whodunit culture. And I think that that what made, uh, I think Mandian, and then you see Microsoft, you see Satya do this at Microsoft and others as well, is they focus on continuous improvement, not a whodunit, mm -hmm. whodunit culture. I think that's the real difference between uh, 
you know, whether it was Colonial or Solar Winds or anyone else, yeah. the moment I see in a breach that they're trying to blame somebody, you mm-hmm. know, they got deep, serious cultural issues mm-hmm. versus uh, continuous improvement the way that Kevin did it. So I guess the solar winds guy is not going to come on my podcast, but that's okay. So let's talk about your business model a little bit. Uh, Horizon three, who are your customers? Um, and how do you hope, uh, where do you see it growing over the next year or two years as I, I the cyber environment is constantly evolving. How are, is your business model designed to adjust to that evolving cyber threat system? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So one, a couple of the, of the primary use cases where we get pulled in first. So, how do you know you're, secu- you're secure? Why wait for a breach to find out? Mm. The two primary use cases our customers use this for. The first is, how do I know I'm logging the right data? How do I know my end- and EDRs are working correctly? How do I know that my defense in depth or layered security or all the investments I've made buying all these tools over the past few years are actually working together to, secure, to, to keep me secure? These tools were not designed to work together. Well, if you used CrowdStrike for EDR, plus Splunk for your seam, plus whatever you want for identity and so on, they're all individually outstanding products, mm-hmm. but they weren't designed to work together. And they're, it's very easy to not log the right data, misconfigure the EDR, and you're not going to know you're exposed until you've been exploited. So the first use case is continuously pen testing your environment or looking at your environment through the eyes of the attacker to identify ineffective security controls and help improve your your detection time. Here's an example. We work with a healthcare company and we were able to, our our autonomous pen testing platform, Node0, was successfully able to get remote code execution on an endpoint, dump LSAS, use the user ID passwords from LSAS, which is on Windows, that's the process where if you've logged in once, you don't have to reauthenticate every time you do something. Mm-hmm. Your login, uh, user ID, and password is stored in a process called LSAS, which is heavily protected by endpoint detection and response type products. We're able to get code execution on the box, dump the LSAS memory, harvested user IDs and passwords, and became domain admin mm-hmm. in the network. Very nice. When we when when the customer saw the attack path and understood and saw all the proof of exploitation, because we don't simulate, we exploit. They said, this, there's no way this is possible. Fortinet, our EDR platform, should have caught you. It turns out Fortinet had been incorrectly installed on three hosts out of a 1,000. And it was one of those three hosts where we were able to get code execution and then dump. They had no idea. And that's an example of continuously verifying the effectiveness of your security controls. So how does your node zero product work? Is it constantly doing vulnerability or penetration testing? Is that, is it, is it automated? I assume it is. Yeah. So there's no humans, there's no professional services and it's autonomous. So the difference between automated and autonomous automated is you have effectively hard coded a sequence of steps that are going to execute over and over and over again. The problem with automated pen testing, which a lot of, um, the breach and attack products and other products like that were all automated. They had hard coded scripts that just did step one, step two, step three is if the environment changes, those scripts have to be maintained Mm -hmm. and attackers adapt. They're not going to do those same things over again. Autonomous. Think of when IBM played Gary Kasparov in chess, they didn't hard code 40 million chess games and say, Oh, Gary must be playing game number 332. Right. They looked at every piece on the board and determine the next best action to win. Mm. For us, what we do is 
when you run initiate our, our self-service pen test, so that means an IT admin or an intern in three clicks is initiating a pen test. The first step of that pen test is to inventory everything that is reachable on the network from that location. Every host, port, service. It'll then from there determine the next best action. Can I harvest credentials? I identified a printer or I've, uh, what looks to be a printer. Can I do an SNMP walk and pull out the Wi-Fi credentials for that printer or the network credentials or whatever? Recent login history. And so you start to, after you've fingerprinted the environment, identify ways that credentials, misconfigurations, vulnerabilities, defaults, all can be combined together to achieve a critical impact, whether that's domain admin, sensitive data exposure, and so on. And all of that is adaptive, and that's really our intellectual property and, and magic you know, secret sauce, is you don't hard code these scripts. If your environment changes, we are automatically figuring out the next best action to compromise you. The more pen tests we run, the smarter we get. Last year, we ran more pen tests than IBM, Accenture, Bishop Fox, TCS, ENY, KPMG, Deloitte combined. Mm. So think of how much smarter those next best action algorithms become. And our customers shift from running one pen test a year to 40 pen tests a month, multiple pen right. tests a day, all self-service. Yeah, especially because if, if all you've got to do is click it to start it and then they'll get a report saying, here's, here's what we found. It makes it very easy to go fix those issues. And so quick question on my part, just try, try to understand how the whole thing works. Is it, are all of your, is your network connected? So like if company A does their pen test and, and your device comes up with, here's the next best step, does it share that information with like a central server or however you have it configured so that, hey, this company over here also has that same setup. So what we've learned here, we can now pop over to here. Exactly. That's our moat. So okay. that's called fleet learning or mm -hmm. collective intelligence. And that's how the more pen tests we run, the smarter we get. Yep. Because as we find ways to compromise in one environment, that gets generalized and, in, and it informs the next best action in somewhere else. And so that's how the more customers we have, the more diverse environments, the more effective and efficient we are in our attacks. So that's the primary, the first use case, not primary, but the first use case is Am I logging the right data? Are my security controls actually working? We ran a pen, our customer ran a pen test and they did no notice against their MSSP. And it took, in this case, their MSSP was Dell SecureWorks. It took Dell SecureWorks seven hours to send a generic email to that medical facility that said, hey, we think you're under attack. Mm. Well, the pen test was finished in two hours. <laughs> so yeah. it was a very awkward conversation between the CISO of that medical facility sure. and the Dell SecureWorks customer success team. But what's great mm -hmm. is uh, they rallied and they worked together to improve their SLAs. So that's just another example of verifying your security controls, verifying the performance of the SOC. The other use case is uh, when the, the Node Zero and the red team and the fixers or the blue team work together to proactively harden the environment. So what customers will do is they'll run us to find problems. The blue team will then go fix them. And then they'll rerun us to verify that the problems have been fixed. And we end up in this find, fix, verify, aha moment that allows purple teaming culture to emerge. So the red team and the blue team working together to proactively harden their systems. A big outcome of that is don't show me 100,000 critical vulnerabilities, which is what vulnerability scanners tell you. Yep. 
Of those 100,000, maybe five or 10 are actually exploitable. Show me what can actually be exploited, prove to me it can be exploited, and then help me understand why this is such a big deal that I should go fix it right away. Because the hardest part of my job when I was a CIO was deciding what not to fix. Yes. Because I had limited fix capacity. Mm -hmm. So they end up using us to accurately prioritize what to fix and what not to fix because we show what's actually exploitable. And then we prioritize it based on, on business impact. Wow. That's great. Does, uh, does your company create like uh, intelligence reports for your customers? So as you, as you collate this information, you see commonalities of, of vulnerabilities or whatever, and you send it out and say, Hey, look for these things. You may not be running that, but if you're thinking about buying this product, here's things to initially start configuring once you get it, because we're going to light you up if you don't do anything like you're supposed to. Yeah. You know, what's amazing. We haven't enabled that yet, but we, we see it where I've, I've, I'm effectively, I'm a data company, right? Pen testing yeah. is a sensor mm -hmm. and I'm collecting a tremendous amount of fingerprinted data on what's the most secure uh, uh, virtualization software. What's the most effective EDR. I've got all of that data through my results over time with pen testing. And there's tons of reports and insights I can deliver, whether it's, Hey, what SIM should you buy? Don't rely on a, on a Gartner magic quadrant, which is highly subjective. Let me tell you what SIMs we've punished and abused and which ones effectively stopped us. And I can tell you with real data now over time and actually inform what's good and what isn't. In fact, our, our customer success team ends up not really focusing on helping customers use our product because it's really easy to use. They end up becoming these trusted advisors where they're answering questions like, hey, what are some segmentation strategies we should use for our network? And what are good segmentation products that you've successfully been able to, or that have successfully defended against you as an attacker. And we end up as this very interesting trusted advisor position, uh, which is just part of the product. That's another thing I believe in, which is don't nickel and dime customers, Yeah, help them be successful and be their partner. What percentage of your clients are coming to you after an incident, as opposed to being proactive and coming before saying, I recognize that I don't want to be, I don't want to be a victim. I want to figure this out beforehand. Cause I've, in the FBI, we we figured there were two types of companies. Those that have been had an intrusion, those just don't know they're intruded yet. So, yeah, hopefully, you're preventing exactly. the second part. There are I, I found three types of of customer segments at a high level. Those that are proactive, so they subscribe to the purple teaming concept. They view security as important as a differentiator, and uh, and will and and those are the kinds we'll work with. And you know, so they come up come to us ahead of a brief. They've successfully fended off attacks. They feel pretty good but they want to get into this continuous find, fix, verify. Mm -hmm. The next type of customer is they were just breached. Their CISO was just fired. <laughs> they just dealt with cleaning up ransomware and so on. And now their board is pressuring them to harden their environment so it doesn't happen again. The third type are those that view security as a compliance checkbox. Mm -hmm. They would rather not know what their problems are because they, if they don't know, they're not liable. You know, yep. cue the red hair meme where they're looking away. And for them, I, uh, and also usually the IT team and the security team have an adversarial relationship where security will find issues, but the IT team doesn't believe them. Yep. With them, we don't even bother. I just short their stock. <laughs> That's a genius. So, right. So, so looking at your stuff, who's, who's worse, Russia or China? Um, I know they're it's different. Really this is, it's different, but I, if you had to, if you had, if someone had to, if, I'm forcing you now, which, which one do you, do you find to be the most problematic? Um, 
So there's an it depends. So what's amazing, so, so one, first things first, right? Yeah. Every, every hacker or offensive person, ethical or not, must be respected because these are people that have devoted significant amounts of time and energy mastering their craft, period. Yep. Anyone that invests as much time as they've done to become an effective hacker means that they are probably some of the best in the world at networking, at operating systems, at uh, reverse engineering, at coding to some degree, right? You have to, no matter who it is, you've got to respect the time and commitment and passion they have for being the best at what they do. Now, if they're applying the best of what they do for, for nefarious reasons versus good reasons, separate conversation. But as a pure skill, sure. never underestimate the skill of a hacker because they have mastered their craft and they passionately believe in mastering their craft. With that said, the, what, what you see in, in the news and elsewhere is the Chinese are incredibly effective at the long game and espionage and intellectual property theft. They're going to invest a tremendous amount of time and resources understanding who you are, what data you have, and they're going to get that data. They stole the SpaceX rocket launch designs, uh, rocket designs by going through a third party visser because they have, you know, they're going to, if they want something, they're going to get it. Mm -hmm. When we look at more on the, whether it's the Russian side or the Iranians or others, it's much more of a spray and pray proxy fight where you're, you're executing offensive cyber operations through criminal proxies. So yep. you've got some level of, of um, decoupling between the intelligence services and the actual act. And when you look at the tactics of criminal organizations, they tend to be more looking for that spray and pay repeatable attack. So it's going to be the same type of ransomware attack over and over and over again until they're able to get success. Mm -hmm. So I think when you look at the, the Chinese approach, it's far more invested and targeted and custom versus the criminal organization approach, which tends to be reuse the same tactics over and over again against a, a large swath to generate revenue and then you know achieve potentially an objective. I think one thing I found, and this is my the analogy I used to give, and, I, and mine is largely focused on intelligence services hacking ability. I mean, they're certainly the criminal part, but in my last part of my career, I was dealing a lot with, counter, with intelligence and counterintelligence. But I always gave this analogy. If you want to know if the Chinese, the Russians, or the Iranians hacked you, if your room is a, is a network and you come in tomorrow and everything's gone, the Chinese were there. If you come in tomorrow and the paperclip on your desk is missing, the Russians were there. And if you come in tomorrow and it's on fire, the Iranians were there. That's the analogy. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, here's, what's, here's what, um, where, where I think the game has changed. So there's, there's two things I think that have, that have changed fundamentally, in not only the last 30 days, but the last year or two. Sure. First, let's go to the last year or two. What we have not yet seen is a synchronized attack across related industries. For instance, Colonial Pipeline was a single act mm -hmm. done in isolation. There was an attack against oil refineries done in isolation. And there are maritime cyber attacks against ships transiting the Suez Canal done in isolation. Any one of those spiked gas prices 5 10%, uh -huh. as we saw. But a committed nation state or adversary once they synchronize a maritime attack that jams up the Suez Canal, plus a pipeline attack, plus a refinery attack, oil prices spike 5,000%. And if you time that the day before an election, you can now change the geopolitical trajectory of a country. So, and none of those exceed the threshold of war. 
because no one's going to drop a bomb on a country because of a cyber attack. At least um, we haven't seen any precedent for that yet. Right. Uh, and so what you see is, I think, the future of cyber warfare, not only being able to, to synchronize these types of attacks to achieve a national outcome below the threshold of war, but as I've proved through Horizon 3, algorithmic cyber warfare is the future. In less than seven, in seven minutes, Node Zero, our autonomous pen testing platform, compromised a bank with no humans and no custom scripting. And that bank had every Gucci security tool you could buy and not a single alert got tripped. Because to your point earlier, we have an effectiveness problem, not a tools problem in cyber right now. Right. If it took me seven minutes today, it'll take me a minute next year. And the bad guy, I'm the good guys, the bad guys are already going down this path. And there's no way a human can defend against a complex cyber attack that achieves its objective in one, in one minute or less. Right. So the future of cyber warfare is out, running at machine speed, algorithms versus algorithms with humans by exception. And if you synchronize those attacks against uh, multiple as avenues of a value chain, you can spike gas prices 5,000%. So I'll, I'll kind of pause there. And that's, I think, the big strategic shift in cyber warfare. And then probably the next part is the shift of being a peacetime CISO, peacetime in quotes, to a wartime CISO, where you now have companies uh, intentionally withdrawing and sometimes even providing material support mm -hmm. to a war effort against a country that has very sophisticated cyber cyber infrastructure. So for the CISOs of those companies that are taking action right now in the Ukraine-Russia fight, they better be wartime CISOs because wrath and vengeance is coming and they better have their act together. That's a, that's a great point. That's going to be the title of this podcast. You better be a wartime CISO. I like that. So, because, so, and obviously you're saying within a year, it's going to be that bad. And, you know, if you look in the defense industrial base, 300,000 companies, 99% of them are small mom and pop shops, maybe a hundred folks or less. They are not really, I, I'm, I'm guessing they are not prepared now. Do you think they're going to be prepared next year, two years from now, three years from now? How do we resolve that issue? That's huge. That's a huge problem. This is something that um, I know at one point, Ann Newberger at NSA was looking at and, and uh, Jenny Easterling and others. In our defense industrial base, we have this huge problem of, for the most part, those organizations are at best a peacetime CISO mindset mm -hmm. and at worst have no security posture whatsoever. Right. And it's easier to go through the supply chain than it is to go direct. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a huge problem if you're in the defense industrial base, if I were king for a day, having CISA or Cybercom or NSAIRS, whomever, provide a an MSSP type offering for anyone in the defense industrial base so that we can protect our supply chain for for national security activities, that, that's the only viable option. Because these companies are not held accountable or motivated mm -hmm. or postured to do anything to improve their posture, and that's a huge risk. Well, that this has been a fantastic conversation. Sneha, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been – the best part about this podcast is I get to talk to a lot of brilliant people. So I really appreciate your time, and, and I'm going to follow your LinkedIn. I recommend everybody else to follow your LinkedIn because you learn a lot in a little bit. Awesome. Thanks, thanks so much. Darren, thank you so much. This, is, this has been awesome. Thank I really you. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one.
So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Snehal and Tani as much as I had conducting it. That was, um, I didn't plan to go that long, but he is such a fascinating guy that I really love talking and getting his in- insights in the things we talked about. It's a great thing about this podcast. I get to talk to people in the industry that are way smarter than I am and just have thoughts and ideas that are that are just great to be able to share with folks that, that listen to the podcast. So um, again, I hope you can share that with other folks out there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. So the case of the week this week is not so much a case of the week, but rather a scam of the week. Has a positive outcome, as we'll come to find. So bottom line up front, there was a positive outcome. The bad part of this is this particular scam happened to myself. So uh, you would think that talking about what I talk about, knowing what I know, and, and being involved in the things I'm involved in, I would not become a victim to an online scam, but it goes to show that it could happen to anyone. It happened to me. Part of it, I will be honest, is pride, as we'll talk about, but just I want to share with what the what the scam was, what kind of happened, how it got to the point, um, and how the resolution occurred. Uh, chances are some of you may have seen this or will get access to it, or well, not access, but will be um, impacted or, or, or be um, targeted by it. Uh, I posted the story on LinkedIn, and I appreciate those folks on LinkedIn who shared it with others. Uh, one lady said it happened exactly to her, and she did a much better due diligence on it than I did. So, so well done, Paulette, on my LinkedIn feed, who um, who responded to my my LinkedIn post. So, essentially, what happened uh, was I got an email. I'll, I'll read it. Here's the email I got this week. This was on Monday. No. Actually, it was last week, but whatever. So I got an email that says, Dear Darren, I am reaching out to see if you'd be interested in exploring executive level opportunities. I am executive recruiter of Executive Circles, Inc., and our client has retained us to fill various senior level positions in one of their recent acquisitions. I have reviewed your LinkedIn profile and found your skills and experience to be impressive and relevant to the job position. If you're interested in learning more about our company and the position, we would love to set up a quick phone call. We would be pleased to answer your questions any questions you may have and give you all the details about the job. Please reply to this email with an updated copy of your resume. Look forward to hearing you. Best regards, John Walsh, Senior Executive Recruiter, Executive Circles. So I went and found the website for Executive Circles. Didn't do a much looking at it other than there was a John Walsh. Um, and apparently, if I had read a little closer, there a couple of the names in their Executive Circle, there were some, mis- some mistypings. And one thing, even in this email, I look at it now, it says, I am Executive Recruiter. It should be I am the executive recruiter. So there's a little typo there. But the the, the key thing about this email that kind of gets you is it, it feeds to your pride. So I was like, hey, they want me for a senior level position. Why would I not want to hear about that? Um, and then he said he'd love to set up a quick phone call, which to me indicates not a scam because they want to talk to you on the phone. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'll send them my resume. So I sent him my resume. I haven't looked at it in quite a while. Um, didn't even update it. Just kind of sent him what I had. Um, and then I get an email back from him. He says, received with thanks. I have forwarded your resume to Mr. Drew Harmon, who is leading the recruitment project. You will hear from him shortly for an interview call. Again, they're going to do a call. That sounds great. So I'd looked up Drew Harmon. Um, he, however, and this is where, this is where I really went wrong. And I'll be honest with you again, pride comes into play. You really want to think that someone wants you for your skills and maybe you can get a really cool executive job, whatever. I have a job, but I'm not saying it's you know, if someone's going to call me about it, I'm probably going to listen, but what the hell? Anyway, that being said, um, so they want to do a call. I'm like, okay, that's great. So I looked up Drew Harmon. He did, there is a Drew Harmon. He doesn't work for this company, though. He works for another company that kind of does the same thing. So I was a little thrown there, but I figured, well, maybe they work together. I, I, again, I should have paid more attention. My bad. I'm a, I'm a dummy. So I sent him my email, and this is what I get eventually from him. This is where the scam starts to go. It says, um, blah, 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 where's, okay, hello, 
Um, this email isn't, this is from Drew Harmon. This email is in response to the resume you've sent us. I'm the team leader on this project and received your information from John Walsh. I will check my schedule and let you know a few time slots for a brief phone call. I'm having trouble uploading your resume to our candidate management system. Have you ever had issues with your resume before? There may be an issue with the file. Can you please send me another copy so I can try again? You have a very professionally written resume, um, and I'm not sure what the issue is. Best regards, Drew Harmon. So now I've done this before with my resume, put them in a system, and parts of it don't cut out. So I kind of that made sense to me. And again, he talks about the phone call, so that's great. So I sent him an, I sent him a new ver, another version, whatever, blah blah blah. And so this is the email. And this is where it all goes to hell. Hello, Darren. I'm still having trouble uploading your resume. I've asked my colleague, and apparently it's a common issue. He instructed me to ask you to get your resume ATS optimized from resumeexperts.net. We can open the file without any issues, but the problem is the way the information, the resume is structured and formatting used is resulting in a lot of missing information, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So they can't get my resume to put into whatever their system is, blah, 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 all that kind of bullshit. So um, it says, for reason of confidentiality and non-disclosure, I'm not able to share any details of the vacancy. However, we have a meeting scheduled with the client today by end of day, and I would love to discuss the opportunity with you in detail after that. So I'm like, okay, so I go, so this is where I go bad. And I go to resumeexperts.net and for $89, they will update my resume into whatever format for this system. Yeah, 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 so sure, fine, whatever. So, um, 24 hours, I say do it within 24 hours and I get it back. And basically I get my resume back with a different file name. That's pretty much all they did was change the file name and put it into PDF format. It doesn't look like they did much conversion on anything. So I send that to this Drew Harmon and that's radio silence. So then I realize, Ooh, that's bad on my part. I did something wrong here. This is going to be, <laughs> it's going to be, I just lost $89, but Hey, I got a good story out of it. So, uh, did a little, did deeper due diligence than I should have done that I should have done initially. And found out that many people have gotten the same email, did the same thing, blah, blah, blah. It's a resume scam. So bad on me for not realizing that. But let's be honest. How do you keep track of every freaking scam out there? I mean, I can't do it. I try. Honestly, I do try to bring this information to people. Um, but I don't pay attention to all of it. So uh, 89 bucks out. So I just I throw a Hail Mary. So I call my credit card company. And they said, well, until it posts on our system, we can't really do anything. I go, okay. So I go to PayPal. And I file a dispute with PayPal saying this was a scam. And I explained what the scam was. And lo and behold, 12 hours later, PayPal returned my money. So I got my money back. So I didn't lose anything other than some um, self-esteem, perhaps, uh, whatever. But so I got my 89 dollars. So good story in the sense that I got, it didn't cost me anything. So I got, so for free, I got this story about this, me getting scammed that I get to now share with you here. So if you get an email from executive circles, know that it is a crap, it is not real, it is a scam. Um, and unless you actually talk to someone on the phone, don't spend any money to update, change, or do anything to your resume if you can prevent it. So with that, we will take a close on this episode of the Cyber Guy podcast. I hope you enjoyed that little bit of humor from yours truly being scammed this week. But hopefully I will not get scammed next week. One can hope. As always, know that knowledge is protection. Thanks so much for listening. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast providers. Feel free to pass and share it to any of your friends who might find value in it, who might, uh, who, and, and a lot of people will be very interested with the in, in, in interview with Sneha and Tani. So please pass that around. Again, thank you so much for your time. We will talk to you soon.